The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, September 24th on CBC Radio. The Prime Minister's claim that India was involved in the killing of a Canadian Sikh activist has had widespread ripple effects since Justin Trudeau made that allegation. And the fallout is impacting our country's large Indian diaspora. You'll hear about how in just a moment. And then a look beyond our borders to what all of this means for Canada on the world stage. After that... Fall has arrived, and that means the NHL preseason is on. Carl Subban, Canada's hockey dad, will be here to tell you about the promise he still sees in the sport, despite the problems plaguing it. In Hour 2, fresh off the UN Climate Ambition Summit, you'll hear from the chair of the international body that assesses climate change, the IPCC, about what he thinks the world needs to do, not just now, but also in the long term to make a real difference when it comes to the climate crisis. And it is just that kind of long-term thinking that BBC journalist Richard Fisher says we should all embrace if only we could take our eye off the clock. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. The political crisis between India and Canada continues to deepen over the killing of prominent Canadian Sikh activist Hardeep Singh Nijar and consequences of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's allegation that India's government was involved are proving to be more than just diplomatic. Tensions within the Indian diaspora in our country have been simmering for decades, and this latest flare-up has some Sikh and Hindu Canadians worried that the divisions might further deepen. Nilesh Bose is a professor who specializes in the history of South Asian diasporas. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Global and Comparative History at the University of Victoria. Nilesh, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Let's just set this up. The Indian diaspora in Canada, it's enormous. It's uh, among the biggest diasporas. sits around 1.7 million people. To put that in context, we're looking at about 4.5% of Canada's total population. And the diaspora is divided almost 50-50 between Sikhs and Hindus. Of course, there are Muslims, Christians, and others in that diaspora as well. I say all that um, because the stakes are big here. These communities have long historical roots in Canada. But prior to this week, how would you describe the relationship between these two subsets of the Indian diaspora, say, in the past decade or so? Well, I think that in the past decade, the relationships within the vast Indian diaspora, as you have mentioned, um, has been quite positive. 
And there are all sorts of relationships that don't get seen uh, in the broader media when diplomatic tensions rise. There are, as you mentioned, long-standing histories and roots in different parts of Canada, different forms of integration into Canada vis-a-vis -vis education, business, agriculture, connections to India, where people work together. And I think that the, the particular identities of one's religion, one's caste, language, region are a little less central than working together and living together in a particular diasporic space. That having been said, there are these moments, flashpoints of broader geopolitical tensions in the 1980s and then today. And they do have an effect, but I think, again, they are magnified and sensationalized often uh, by the media. So we'll get to the 80s in just a bit. Um, have you seen things, though, change this week? I know it's only been, you know, five or six days since these allegations from the prime minister first came out. But what are you what are you hearing from people? And again, these are large numbers of people, but um, from the Sikh community, let, let's start there. Yes, I'd say, um, you know, what I'm hearing from the Sikh community is that there is a heightened sense of fear and anxiety. And I think that goes across the board and that informs all sorts of things in our day and age, not just in this context, but a heightened sense that perhaps the uh, Indian government, you know, is is maintaining lists of people, is monitoring people in different places where Sikhs have a outsized presence, like in Surrey or in Brampton. I'm hearing about that. I also am hearing about uh, fears of parts of Canada not being safe for Indian students and Indian travelers. On the Sikh side, in, within that, again, very large community, about 800,000 Sikhs in our country, where does the Khalistani independence issue sort of sit? Like, is that a divisive issue within that community? And if so, to what extent? I think it is just because, like any other community, there are diversity of voices and positions. It, it is not at all the case that the vast majority of people in the Sikh community are are behind the Khalistan movement. And so, therefore, there are some who are quite opposed to the movement. There are some who, I'd say the majority of people, are not deeply connected either way to fanciful and extraordinary notions of Khalistan. And then there are some who are. Um, so it is a point that showcases the vast diversity within the Sikh uh, communities of Canada. Hmm. Okay, so what are you hearing from Hindu Canadians, which I should say you and I are both part of that diaspora, of the Indian diaspora in this country. Yes. And I know I've been talking to my family and friends and hearing all different kinds of perspectives, frankly, from within that large, again, a number of people. But generally, what are you sort of hearing? Well, I am hearing uh, sentiments of fear and concern and questions about whether Canada is safe. The Indian media and the Indian government has publicized various uh, flashpoints, again, attacks on Hindu temples that have occurred in recent months, attacks on the Indian consulate. And these have been shared in order to, I think, instill this kind of sense of anxiety. And so I'm feeling and hearing a lot about that within that sector of the Hindu communities of Canada as well. The other thing Modi is doing and his motivations, one could argue, are questionable for doing this, but is um, sort of, you know, calling out to the diaspora to be, and I'm talking about the Hindu diaspora, to be very proud of India and that message about India rising and the great power that it is and, and to be loyal to that. How much do you think that's resonating? 
I think that is touching somewhat of a note in the vast uh, Indian diaspora. Again, just like as we were speaking about the Sikh communities of Canada, extraordinary diversity in terms of politics, positionality, subjectivity. The same would go for Hindu communities throughout the world and anybody who identifies with India. So I think there is this resonance, though, a bit with the rising sense of a Hindu nationalist position, which links up the idea of being Hindu with the idea of being Indian. And that whenever India is attacked, undermined, or anything like that, it is linked up to a sense of, of the Hindu community's presence and safety. Okay, you mentioned the 1980s, and I wish we had time to do a big, long history lesson, because all of this stuff is intricately entwined. But let me just highlight a couple of events that happened in the 1980s that are layered into all of this and has had an impact on relations within the diasporas uh, in our country. So 1984, the Indian military goes into the Sikh's holiest place, the Golden Temple, killed hundreds of Sikh separatists. That same year then, India's then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi assassinated by her Sikh bodyguard, seen as an act of revenge. And then a year later, the Air India bombing that left 329 people dead, including 268 Canadians, people I know, I think probably people you know, died uh, in that. Um, the Khalistan movement has been linked to that bombing. And I'm just wondering how these histories, the legacy of those, have been burbling to the surface this week. Have you seen that? Yes, I think in the context of six in Canada, there is the lingering and the very much continuing search for justice for people who were hurt, who were kidnapped, who were potentially involved or killed by the Indian state in the 1980s during that time and afterward. And then from the perspective of India, there is a sense that Canada did not do enough to identify and to prosecute those who were responsible for this. And those lingering tensions, I think, continue to inform the diaspora communities here in Canada. Hmm. We know that um, members of the Indian diaspora, whether they be six or others, are quite politically engaged in Canadian politics at, at all the levels um, of, of government. How big of an impact do these communities now have on Canadian politics? We know politicians of all stripes are always trying to court the so-called ethnic vote, and India's government is repeatedly accusing Justin Trudeau of making policy based on his own domestic political priorities, trying to appease the Sikh vote. That's the accusation. So what is the balancing act here for Canadian politicians? I think now, as you say, that is a major issue that should be kept in mind whenever any official Canadian statements are issued. Uh, the potential relationships with the Canadian Sikh community is, I think, at the base of Canada's presentation uh, of all of these allegations. And now uh, India is also highlighting that in, in how it presents itself, that it claims that Canada is is more concerned with elements within Canada, some of whom may be responsible for various crimes against India, according to the Indian state. And I think today, uh, every politician in Canada has to be mindful of a whole variety of audiences and to be mindful first and foremost of, of the Canadian uh, Sikh community. Tomorrow on Monday, um, a group that supports the Khalistani movement, Sikhs for Justice, is calling for peaceful protests outside Indian consulates in Toronto and Vancouver, as well as in Ottawa. So what do you think governments need to do to ensure that tensions within the diaspora in Canada don't escalate from here? 
I think one thing that could be done is the maintenance of security and all forces dispatched to protect spaces of worship and community centers. And so as we know that there were attacks on Hindu temples earlier this year in Canada, I think it would make a big statement if uh, all places of worship and community centers were protected and that uh, messaging about the protests, as you mentioned, uh, that will happen focused on peaceful activity, whereas we know that in in past incidences, Indian consulates have been attacked and have been the subject of all sorts of extremist acts. And if And if it is clarified that those are not permissible within Canadian context, I think that will go a long way to diffusing tensions. Nilesh, it's been good to hear from you um, today and, and earlier this week as well. Um, thank you for putting all this into better context for us. Thank you so much. Nilesh Bose is a professor at the University of Victoria who specializes in the history of the South Asian diaspora. Well, the impact of all of this is also affecting Canada's place on the world stage, and it comes in the wake of allegations of foreign interference by China in Canadian politics, as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine. To discuss how these issues and challenges intersect and what they might mean for Canada geopolitically, I'm now joined by two experts in international affairs. Besma Momani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, and here with me in our studio is Arif Lalani. He is a former Canadian ambassador to several countries, including the United Arab Emirates and Afghanistan. He is currently a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Good morning to both of you. Morning. Morning. It hasn't um, even been a week since the Prime Minister stood in the House of Commons and told Canadians and the world the accusations that agents of the Indian government targeted and killed a Canadian on Canadian soil. In the following days, the Prime Minister has repeated that Canada has evidence. CBC has reported that evidence includes intercepted communications and human intelligence. Broadly, we have said that that's what we know. And there have been repeated demands from India to see that evidence. Arif, it's been, I think, six days. What do you make of how the federal government has been handling all of this thus far? Well, I think it certainly has been high drama. um, And it's left uh, a lot of questions, right? I I think it's very unusual for a head of government to get up in a legislature and really accuse another democratic ally of committing a crime on your soil uh, and then stop. So I think the government did it because they felt Canadians had a right to know the story was being uh, about to be made public. So that's fair. Did it have to be the prime minister? Uh, I think when you start at the top at a head of government level, you've got to expect that you're now going to have, you know, quite a response from the other side. So that's what we're seeing. Unfortunately, it's a lot of drama. Uh, and there are a lot of questions, you know, what exactly is the evidence? Uh, what exactly is it that the Indians uh, should do? What is the cooperation you're expecting? And what is your process for the investigation? So I, I think there's a lot of questions for Canada to answer at this stage. Besma, where are you on this? How, how do you think the federal government, namely the prime ministers, handled this? Arif, I don't think, was asking that rhetorically, should it have been the prime minister who stood up in the House of Commons? How do you see all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but agree that there's a bit of um, almost showmanship to Trudeau standing up in the parliament. Uh, maybe it was a bit over the top um, in the sense that um, it could have been handled, I think. And certainly we know from the reporting that there is evidence that this was at a a bilateral level of, of bureaucrats, various national security folks visiting India and really uh, laying out the cards um, to the Indian government. And certainly Trudeau did mention to Modi, and it sounds like from reporting the Americans that they also 
uh, raised it with Modi as well, at least Biden did. But I do think that there was a little bit of um, kind of trying to attract or attention grabbing a little bit in terms of of getting the camera's attention uh, on Trudeau. Um, And that, I think, really set him up for more critique. Uh, I think had he let the report come out in the Global Mail as as was being, if you will, kind of dangled in front of the prime minister and hence why he rushed to, to parliament. I think that would have been better address it after the fact the, the article come out and, and really lay it out that way in a press conference rather than kind of standing up in parliament. It doesn't take away from what I think is a broader challenge. And, and I'd be happy to talk about why I don't think this is something that we can ignore. And, and we need to really stand against the very act of, of having uh, a citizen, regardless of who they may be uh, from being killed by a foreign agent. Hmm. Here's the challenge for the government, and the government has said as much, Arif, is there's two parallel investigations, a criminal one uh, being led by Canadian police forces into uh, the killing of Niger, but also this broader one about the alleged involvement of the Indonesian. And they said, look, we, we, we can't just show our cards. That's not how this works. Is that a, a defense that can stick for them right now? Well, again, I think it's a bit of a management issue. I think the defense that could stick... Um, I guess if you didn't start at the top in terms of the spokesperson, you could have had the national security advisor or a minister say, look, uh, Global Mail is about to report this. Canadians should know we are. We confirm that it is. And we won't say any more on the matter until our investigation is finished and we'll continue to deal with the Indians. That was one scenario. We're not in that scenario. Uh, So I think now, uh, I think there are questions that will need to be answered. how long will the investigation take? Uh, you can't divulge all of the intelligence that you may have shared with the Indians, but I think there is going to be pressure to explain what is it that you're looking for uh, from the Indians. And finally, I think for the sake of the families of the victims, um, I really hope the criminal uh, procedure continues. Mm. Uh, as you said, there maybe there are two processes. I think the families really need to see this criminal investigation take its course and, and I would hope get to court as quickly as possible. Besma, let us talk about um, the Indo-Pacific strategy and the broader relationship between Canada and India because we've been trying to sort of court India in this larger strategy, which at this point seems not very feasible from our end. Um, but at the same time, India, world's largest democracy as it's known, but its national government under Prime Minister Narendra Modi has also been widely criticized for ongoing human rights violations against um, religious minorities and other minority populations, things that have been documented by groups like Human Rights Watch. Is this a government that Canada should be trying to do business with? Well, I mean, first, let's break it down a little bit. I mean, the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, you know, it's already uh, complicated without having China, which is uh, still the largest economy in the region, out of the Indo-Pacific strategy because of the decoupling and de-risking that, that the West is undertaking with China today. And then take out India, you really don't have much of a strategy. So I think it really is, um, you know, problematic for our future economic relations with the rest of this region uh, if we have the two principal most powerful economies out uh, in some way. And certainly I don't think we're, we're there yet with, with India, but ultimately this is going to sour things. And, and partly the reason why is attached to your second question, you know, Modi and the BJP. I mean, not only are they going into an election, but I think the disturbing thing that we all need to know is that this is really playing well for him and his base. Uh, this is a populist nationalist leader, a party that has increasingly, you know, not only 
I turned far more right. And as you said, on ethnic minorities and the rest, but, you know, clamping down on the rule of law within India, uh, media environment is no longer what it was. Uh, intellectuals are being persecuted. I mean, there's a great deal of challenges in this country. And indeed, I mean, I think this is really a sad statement when you know that, you know, Modi is probably going to, you know, gain some bumps in the polls, if you will, after this, because of that strong nationalist movement in the country. And it's coming at the expense of a lot of minorities in India, absolutely. And I think uh, that secular nature of India that I think we've all admired in its history is slowly, slowly Mm. changing. And so, Arif, it seems to me from what I'm hearing from both of you that at this point, India sort of holds, you know, has the upper hand in this diplomatic dispute. Well, I think it has the upper hand in the diplomatic dispute. Uh, everything is going to rest in the coming weeks and months on, you know, is what is the intelligence? I mean, if some really uh, troubling information comes out, things could change for India. But uh, I also agree with Besma's point. You know, we're operating in a changed world. Uh, I often like to say it, it's a world of new geography. So Canada and other countries feel very comfortable in our geography, which is G7, NATO, uh, maybe even G20, you know, North America free trade area. But we're living in a different geography. We're living in a geography in which India, China, and the countries of the Gulf now have the largest proportion of financial resources in the world, the largest combined population in the world, more than the rest of the world combined. And that's not going to change. And so what I'm trying to say is our friends have found a way to navigate through this complexity. So we're not living in a uh, black and white world where we have the luxury of picking perfect friends. Hmm. So we have to balance our values and our interests, and that doesn't mean compromising them. I think the tough job is to find out how you do both rather than you know make a lot of statements and then wait for things to change. Besma, where are you on this? Because, of course, we've been the last number of days talking about the allies of Canada. You know, the U.S. has said we stand with Canada in its investigation. That, that coming from, um, you know, spokespeople, and, I, I should say, it's not coming from the top levels of President Biden, right? So given what Arif just said, like, you know, maybe the West has to look at the world a little bit differently and pivot a bit. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree. And I think the challenge is we, we feel alone yet again. I mean, this is really reminiscent to me. You know, back when the Saudis uh, kind of retaliated against that tweet uh, that the Canadian embassy had put out, um, you know, severing, you know, ties and so forth. And, and really, I feel like we're, we're alone again. And the context here is really important because of, again, similarly, Biden is uh, has an Indo- I mean, almost every Western country now has their own Indo-Pacific strategy, which is pretty much, you know, you can read them all. And I've had a chance to skim most of them. They're really, frankly, very similar. We're pivoting away from China. Uh, de-risking is the language to be used, and India is going to be the savior. So how is that going to be done uh, if we're going to ostracize India? And that's why we're seeing almost silence. I mean, Jake Sullivan, yes, uh, and John Kirby, you know, noted something in terms of supporting Canada. But, you know, it needs to come from Biden himself, in my humble view. Uh, that's the only way I think uh, the BJP and Modi is going to get the message that it's not okay. I don't think that, you know, had this uh, you know, Nijar bin in the United States, the, the the Indian agents would have gone after him. I simply don't think they would have. They would Why do you dare. say that? Well, because I think, you know, Canada is easy to, to punch down. Uh, you know, we, we um, are seen as, you know, not nearly as powerful on the global stage. We're not a great power. And uh, frankly, you know, I think it's um, easy to beat up on Canada. Uh, and we've got lots of, um, I think, loose ends in terms of 
not putting national security at a high priority the way I think some of our other allies do. I mean, it's there's a reason why there's silence, frankly, from the very top. The UK's got its own problem. It's trying to create a free trade agreement with with India and is in a post-Brexit lull. Uh, but, you know, the Australians is the closest we got, and partly because they're like us, middle power, who have always sort of seen both China and India uh, really kind of... Uh, you know, willing to, to beat up on the Australians because if they offend Canada or Australia's middle powers, eh, so what? But they wouldn't dare do that to the U.S. or the U.K. Yeah, I, I think, Besma, you're absolutely right. But don't also forget the Australians are very locked into security arrangements with the, uh, with the Indians and the United States. So we have allies who, who are navigating very complex relationships and I think the lesson here uh, for Canada is it, it can't all be all or nothing. It can't just be black or white, which doesn't mean you have to compromise, but you have to find a way to deal with countries. And it's not really, do we put all of our eggs with India? Do we pick India? It, it exists. It's one of the largest economies in the world. We already trade with it. We're not going to stop trading with it. So the idea that we can kind of, what I call canada splain to the rest <laughs> of the world... Um, those days are over. Mm. Uh, before I left government, I used to do some of these negotiations, including with the Indians. And I think we're just losing our audience share because um, we, we tend to lecture and we haven't delivered on our commitments. We don't pay the 2% at NATO. Uh, we're not really meeting the climate change objectives. Um, if you want development assistance, we're not meeting the 1% target. Uh, and it kind of goes on. So we've got to execute. So in the same week, Arif, that we saw this allegation, the Prime Minister in the House, then um, the Ukrainian uh, Vladimir Zelensky comes to Canada and meets with the Prime Minister in Ottawa. They have events in Toronto. The geopolitical world is all intertwined. So, so is there a relationship? Is there a through line between our relationship with India and Ukraine? Well, if I could jump in, I, I thought it was interesting that President uh, Zelensky, in one headline I saw, asked Canada to use its very special or valued relationships to help him. And I'm not really trying to be difficult here, but I'm wondering what those special or valued relationships are at the moment. Um, I'm not sure who could we actually go to to, to get uh, help. I mean, yes, we speak to the Europeans. Yes, we speak to the Americans. But are those relationships any more special than they have with each other? So... I agree with Besma that we're increasingly uh, not uh, part of the relationships that matter in the world. A and it, Canadians will feel that at home. It will matter to trade agreements. Uh, it will matter to access for our corporations and our businesses in certain parts of the world. It, and it matters to our allies. They need a Canada that's engaged. They don't need a Canada that just has its say and then kind of waits. And there's a difference between having your say and being heard. Hmm. And if you want to be heard, you've got to be engaged. You've got to, and you've got to execute. You've got to go past the first level. Besma, how do you piece these last number of months together in terms of Canada's um, on the world stage, in terms of the war in Ukraine, the foreign interference allegations in our elections uh, of China, and, and now the, the, the piece of the puzzle of India? I mean, I mean, I would say one thing, you know, look, the global south uh, does feel like it's rising back to Arif's, um, you know, new access uh, between the Gulf and, and India and other parts of the global south. They, they do feel as though they have the upper hand for the first time. Uh, we need them then more than they need, uh, need us. Uh, they're a huge market, uh, manufacturing, uh, increasingly 
uh, of course, as well, agricultural products. I mean, there is a, a great sense in many parts of the global south that this is their time to shine. And they're absolutely true. It's true. I agree with Reef on this. They are tired of the moralizing. They're tired of being told about democracy promotion, all these, you know, wonderful things. And I don't think we need to give up on that. But we do need to be more than just rhetoric, back to what I think Arif also pointed out. We can't just come to the table with our words and our words only. Uh, people want to see action. Well, well, what about, Bezer? Can, yeah. can I just ask, mm-hmm. because we only got about a minute left, but there is mm-hmm. the argument that Canada needs to stand up for its principles, right? That's what we do in this country. That is the argument the federal government will make, that, that to both of your criticisms, it'll say, we have values and principles and we will defend them. Right, but you can't come to the table with just values and principles. And that's what we do. I think Bess must put it brilliantly. You know, I teach a course here at the Monk School and I tell my students, you know, it's not enough just to have a good policy paper. You've got to figure out how you're going to implement it. And it's exactly what Bessma is saying. Uh, it's one thing to state your principles. You've actually got to find a way to navigate to get things done. Bessma, um, last word to you. What would you say to the Prime Minister? Like, what's what's the next step short of showing the evidence? Oh, I mean, this is really tough. I mean, I guess at this point, um, stay a little quiet, let the bureaucrats do their thing. I think I want to see less of him and more of the, the people behind him in terms of the the, the, secu- the civil service. And, and more importantly, get the Americans and the UK and the Australians to vocally support Canada. I think this is not a time for us to be alone and we need to really lean on our so-called allies and say, look, uh, you need to come out very much from the, the high uh, echelons of power and say this is not acceptable. Arif, I should give you the quick last word here as a former ambassador, what we should be doing as a country. I think we need to work to contain this uh, to what governments can do. This is an issue between governments, protect the private sector and the and the people-to-people ties, uh, and really lay out your next steps for the investigation so people know what we're going to do. Thank you both for coming in, uh, Arif, and to you, Besma, for joining us. Um, thank you for your analysis this morning. Thanks. Thanks. Besma Mamani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. Arif Lalani is a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He's also a former Canadian ambassador. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Well, NHL players are back on the ice this weekend, sharpening their skates and their skills as the preseason kicks off. It's also the time of year when many kids and their parents gear up for their hockey seasons, maybe even buying sticks and helmets for the very first time. Those nerves and excitement are feelings Carl Subban knows well. After all, he's known as Canada's hockey dad. The father of five has raised not one, but three NHL players, Malcolm, Jordan, and you have likely heard of PK. Carl Subban is also a school principal and former teacher who's long been passionate about sharing his wisdom on motivation, drive, and potential. And he channels some of that in a new book for kids. It's called The Hockey Skates. Carl Subban, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Let's talk about this book. This book is about a little kid named, (laughs) wait for it, everyone, P.K. Subban. Um, Sounds familiar. He's a budding hockey player who's eagerly anticipating the arrival of his very first pair of skates. And just to kick us off, Carl, can you just read a bit of this book to give us a better sense of it? Okay, here I go. With a knock, knock, knock on the door, the mail carrier delivered the skates in a box. P.K. couldn't wait to open it. With a cut, 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 
and a rip, 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 he opened the box and was sad, sad, <laughs> sad. When PK looked in the box, it was empty, empty, empty. He saw no skates for him to wear. Okay, we'll leave the cliffhanger of what happens. <laughs> uh, but as we heard there, little PK experiences the highs of anticipating that first yeah. pair of skates, mm-hmm. um, only to feel disappointed. What are the lessons you're hoping to relay through that story, whether it be about hockey or beyond? Yeah, well, PK wanted the skates badly. And I have to share this, that PK, Malcolm and Jordan started out wearing used equipment. Okay, so it's a true story. They've always wanted the new skates or the new stick or the new pants. But, you know, he wanted skates in the box, but it was a disappointment that met him. And he had to meet it and face it and work through it. You know, when I tell PK's story or Malcolm and Jordan's story, uh, I often talk about their ability to work through disappointments. Because without that ability to work through disappointments, I don't believe they would have made it as far up the hockey ladder as they did. Can I ask you about those used skates in real life? Because you're, <laughs> you're boys, right? Yeah. Played on used skates. I know it was a different time, but, you know, kids always want the new thing. So when they had to show up at hockey with the used skates and other kids got their flashy new skates, that's a hard moment for parents, right? Because a kid says, why do I got these crummy skates, pops? What'd you say to them? You know what I'll say to them is I'll tell the story about PK wearing uh, used skates. I'll, say, I'll share that story. And, I, and then I'll say to them, you know what? It didn't matter to his feet. <laughs> Whether the skates were new or used. And guess what? It didn't matter about the color of his feet either. Or the shape of his feet. Or the size of his feet. The most important thing was the size of the dream he had. And, you know, and so sometimes we pay too much attention to the things that don't matter. And then I think it was a lesson around what's really important here. Is it... The skates on your feet or the feet in the skates. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. right? The feet don't get to change. The yeah, skates they, might. Yeah. When your mind gets involved, it's like, mind your own business, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Tell your mind. Mind your own business. So you talk about your, your boys, and I should say you also have yeah. two daughters. I, I always, you know, let, let's balance it all out. You got five kids, right, who have all done wonderful things, and I'm, I know you're equally proud of all of them. But the passion for hockey within the Subban family really begins with you, Carl. You're an immigrant from Jamaica to Canada. You come over as a little kid. Where did your passion kind of burble up from? Coming from Jamaica, the summer I turned 12. And we were living on a street in Sudbury, Ontario called Peter Street. We lived upstairs. After waking up to my first full day in Canada, I looked out the window. And I said to my mom and dad, I'm not going out there. It doesn't look like, it did not look like Jamaica, okay? They were, no, they were all rocks. I didn't see any trees. <laughs> Long story short, another day came. I looked outside through that window onto Peter Street. I did not see one boy or girl who looked like me. Hmm. I said, I told them I'm not going out there. Another day came. I heard kids in conversations outside. I asked my mom and dad, what are they saying? We don't know either because they're speaking French. I said, for sure, no, I'm not going out there. Long story short, I went to school. I had the best teacher. But I still had to walk home. 
through that neighborhood that did not look like Jamaica, seeing those kids who didn't look like me or they were or speaking like me. But one day, I was walking home in this heavy snowfall, and one of them gave me an invitation, asked me to play hockey with them. They could have turned on me, turned their backs to me, called me all these names, but they made a decision to be helpful to this kid who did not look like them. Hmm. And so that for you... Because they could have, I don't know, asked you to come play soccer or asked you to go to guitar It class. could have been anything. It could have been anything. Because I played lacrosse with them. Hmm. I played all the schoolyard games with them. We had a hockey rink. I was Ken Dryden in that. So <laughs> those kids, you know, they didn't see all the differences. They could have easily. They introduced me to spaghetti and alphagetti. <laughs> I thought it's true. It's a true story. Carl, your hockey story is one of inclusion, but... The conversations a lot of people are having nowadays about the sport are conversations about exclusion. Um, As you well know, the hockey-related headlines have been rife with allegations of abuse, bullying, hazing, and racism. So for you, what was it like to navigate that space with your kids? What kind of conversations were you having with your boys? A couple of times I had a conversation with them because the question, even if you don't ask, you don't bring it up. Because you'll never bring up the color of your skin, but it seems to come up. And and you never wanted the conversations to be about that or, or around that. So you try to try to push it aside. But here's what I did. Here's, here's what I could control. I had no control uh, over the thoughts or what people would say. But what I was able to control is the number of hours my boys spent practicing. Hmm. There was something about practicing and getting better. And while they were maybe spending time thinking about that little black boy, I'm spending time about thinking about that little hockey player <laughs> and how to make him better. Hmm. I really, I, there were times we walked into the arena, everyone knew who, who PK's parents were because we were the only black people in the arena, okay? Yeah. Uh, but people notice him on the ice, and I really mean this, because of his ability, his mm. skills. You saw his potential at work. This is my mindset. The most important thing about me is my potential. It's not my beautiful skin color. So when the, ki- <laughs> the kids come home and say, yeah. hey, Dad, someone called me this or someone pointed out I'm different or whatever, you'd say, what, don't worry about it? No, It's your no. potential? You know, I remember PK crying one time, and we had the conversation about that. He was crying. Yeah, Some of course. Some kid had said something in the, in the dressing room. But the thing is, you're more than just a black person. People get caught up onto that. And I'm saying, uh, you're more than that person in the black skin. We're all more than that. So I don't focus on that. I want PK to focus on his potential. I want all young people to focus on their potential because that will define you. Hmm. It's not going to be the color of my skin. It's not because PK was black, he became this great hockey player, folks. It's because he believed in his potential and he worked to realize his potential as a hockey player. So if you want to sit there and let the color of my skin bother you, well, you're going to have a lot of bad days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Where does I mean, that come from for you, Carl? What is it about you that you were like, you know what, I'm going to, as much as I can, cut that noise out and say, look, we're going to focus on potential. 
I'm going to share this with you. So when people ask me how we did it, you know, they ask me, and I, it's so easy to talk about the number of hours skating and practicing, shooting pucks. But, you know, it was my ability to grow. Because of my ability to grow, I think it, I got out of the way for my sons to go where they wanted to go. Think about it. I had to learn how to have a positive attitude in the storm. <laughs> You know, I had to learn how to relate to people who were difficult to relate with. I had to learn how to lead, lead PK. Uh, you know, a coach had told him, PK, you'll never make it in hockey. You'll never go as far as I did. So how do we help him to work through that? You know, it, it was a lot of times it's how we work through it. Let's talk about more about inclusion. Last week, um, it was a pretty joyous moment for well, a lot of Canadians, when the Professional Women's Hockey League... Oh, I'm so... Wow. ...did their um, draft, right? Yeah. Women and girls are still fighting for better inclusion in this sport. But what, when you saw that, when you saw the um, PWHL and women, uh, former players sitting and being so proud and, and players being drafted, what are you thinking as the hockey guy? I'm going to share you share with you what my thoughts are around that based on the the conversation, I'll mention the school I work, Everest Academy. It's a school for student-athletes, and it's a co-ed school. The boys in our school, they see the OHL, they see the Olympics, they see the NHL. And our girls, our girls, now they see this league that they can aspire to and train to be a part of. It's such a positive a thing. You know, when I coach Gina Rapaci, a young girl on my hockey team, and by the way, the parents, I coached for about 10 years. They never called what I was doing coaching. I don't know why, <laughs> but I coached Gina. I, I believe she played for the junior national team. We didn't have this league for her. So it just opens the door for my granddaughter who plays house league and for all the young girls and young ladies out there. I watched the Women's World Cup this year. Mm. Wow. The skill, the power. You know what that was? Just being given the opportunity. Hmm. When you're given the opportunity, you should never, ever be surprised at some potential outcomes. And I saw those ladies and wow. So those are the strides we've made in the hockey world, right? And then there are the strides that still need to be taken. And last week, uh, Mike Babcock, former coach of the Leafs, um, stepped down as yes. the coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets amidst these allegations. He had asked players to show him their photos on their phones, which was seen as a major invasion of privacy. Now, some observers say that resignation signals a shift in power dynamics between players and coaches. You agree with that? Like, how did you read that move? Yeah, I don't know enough about it. I just like you, just what I've heard on TV and, and reading in the newspapers. But, you know, there, it's a good thing because, you know, uh, we have to value people. Also, wherever you're coaching, you're, you're in a position to influence people. And, and that's what a leader does. You influence. Remember, your words and actions can get in the way of you influencing them to do the things you want them to do. So we always have to, I know sometimes we have blind spots. And so we have to be, even as a school principal, you know, and I, I want the kids to do better. I want them to get better. I want them to become more. And sometimes they'll do things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. So how do I address it? You've got to value them. 
and 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 you got to make sure that they continue to, to feel good about the person they are. Mm-hmm. We have to be so careful about the things that we say and do when you're in a position of leadership. So given, you know, the, that, that kind of example, or whether it's Hockey yes. Canada, Carl, I'm sure you've had people come up to you in the last number of years and say, hey, I got like my little kid and they want to play hockey, or I've got this teenager who wants to play more, you know, higher level hockey. But I'm sitting here thinking, Carl, why? Like, why would I do that? What do you say to them? You know, there are going to be stuff happening everywhere. You know, you walk into any school, there are going to be things happening that should be happening. And so the the hockey arena, the hockey dressing room, and some of these things, uh, they're happening in other places too. I hope they're not hap- happening as frequently as some might believe. But you know what? There are lessons to be learned from these things. Come on. So when these things pop up, wherever they are popping up, uh, maybe the coach saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or whatever it is, we have to turn them into to where they're learning from them. You got to uh, find a way to gain from the pain. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So my daughter, who's 13, is a competitive gymnast. Wow. Yeah, pretty, pretty good. Really good proud you. of her. Good for you. It's a lot of work on her part. Yep. <laughs> but it does ask a lot of sacrifices of a parent. Too, yes. Right? It's a lot yeah. of commitment. You spend... I don't know. You probably can't even tell me how many hours you've spent in an arena as a parent of kids playing hockey. Did you ever think, is this worth it? Oh, cheesy. I'll do it again. Uh, People might say, Carl, it's easy for you to say, but yeah, I would do it like my granddaughter. I don't know if she'll play as long as my boys did, but I take her to her hockey. I signed her up for hockey and uh, I definitely, definitely would do it again. Mm. I experience more positive things, believe it or not, than negative things. People look at me, I think, because of the color of my skin, that it must have been really bad. I'm going to say that, you know what? It was really good. Hmm. Yeah, there's some things that I did wrong. There's some things that others did wrong. But in many ways, people did the right things. And I'm not just saying it because I'm saying it. Because a lot of the, there are a lot of people who um, are not my skin color who really helped my boys to make it where they are today. Sure. So, but there's some things that we need to clean up in the game. Believe mm-hmm. me. Let's go back to your book. So <laughs> your book is about a kid waiting for his skates. They eventually come. They show up. Yeah. Take me to that moment. What were you saying in that moment when those skates show up? Yeah, it's because it came out of her hockey story. Uh, PK's first skates were his sister's figure skates. We still have them at home. And his first hockey pants were used. He played for the Calgary Flames in his house league. And from top to bottom, I'm not sure of anything other than his garter belt. That was the only new thing. <laughs> Thank goodness <laughs> yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. And because I remember that night, I sat the Friday night trying to piece it all together. It's like a puzzle. It's like giving me a puzzle. It says, Carl, I want you to put the pieces together, but we don't have a picture for you, okay? And, and that's what it was. And, and so... I look at our story, how I'm able to use it to help others, to parent and to write their own story. Why wouldn't I want to do it again? Hmm. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Oh, thanks uh, for having me. And, and I hope I was able to bring a lot of value to the listeners today. That was Carl Subban. His new kid's book is called The Hockey Skates.
The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. Climate ambition was the goal of a special summit that was held this past week during the UN's General Assembly, and world leaders gathered in New York had some stark warnings. The pursuit of profit over the well-being of humanity is not right. We are in the final stages of what actions are needed to preserve this planet. And regrettably, I'm not sure that everyone is getting it. Present warnings will be tomorrow's cascading disasters if we do not accelerate climate action and implement systemic change. But if you don't take corrective action now, you will have to tell us where you have been keeping all of your scientific research to relocate you and your families to the planet Mars or the planet Pluto. Our focus here is on climate solutions and our task is urgent. Humanity has opened the gates of hell. Well, no uncertain terms there, including from that last voice you heard, that of Antonio Guterres. The UN Secretary General called on wealthy nations to take aggressive action after a summer that broke heat records around the world and, of course, saw fires and floods from coast to coast to coast in our country. And the World Survival Guide to the Climate Crisis often comes from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC reviews thousands of scientific papers per year to craft reports on what's driving climate change, its effects and potential risks, and how adaptation and mitigation could address them. These reports are a clarion call of sorts, meant to be frameworks for governments to develop climate policies, but the IPCC does not tell policymakers what actions to take. Jim Ski is the current chair of the IPCC. He's also a professor of sustainable energy at, at Imperial College London. Jim Ski, good morning. Thank you for making time for us today. Yeah, good, good morning. Pleased to be with you. You've been described as having the world's most important job in climate science during the most important decade of our humanity. You're appointed chair in July. So what's it been like walking into this job at this particular moment in time? I, I think it was an extraordinary uh, moment after the elections, which took place uh, in uh, late July, because it just seemed like all the things that IPCC had been projecting over the last few cycles were on, a, on us in a really dramatic fashion. So across the world, we had wildfires, we had extreme uh, weather events, and it's like we were really caught in the crossfires right from the very moment uh, that the, the elections uh, took place. Part of what the IPCC does is assess projections as to the future of climate change. It's been a tough time with the climate crisis. You were just referring to the summer there, Jim. It was the hottest summer on record. How did the reality of this summer compare to projections? We assess the projections that other people, other scientists make. So just to be very precise about this, but just to be to be quite cl clear, uh, you know what happened. 
all of the, the things that we saw this summer had been projected in the assessment, you know, during IPCC assessments. I think the surprise was that they were coming upon us as quickly as they were. And I think that has actually surprised quite a lot of scientists. It means that climate change is not something for decades in the future. It's something that's on us right now. Hmm. And so surprised, but what about underestimated? Is, is it surprising that, or is it that we underestimated it? Well, I mean, just to say, when in the, the kind of projections that IPCC assesses, there are always ranges of uncertainty in there. And what I, I think I would say is that some of the things we've seen are right at the edge of the envelope of the bands of uncertainty that are sitting there in the projections. So it's not completely out of line with the projections, but you know, the fact that this has come so quickly and it's so close to the edge of the envelope, I think is what has been surprising. Hmm. Um, let's talk about climate change, climate change and the economic costs. Wealthy countries have been promising to give $100 billion a year to uh, poor countries to help with climate change. You've talked about the importance of equity on a global scale. Tell me about that. Why is this such a significant message for you? Well, I think I think it's important because one of the very clear messages that came out of the last IPCC reports is that those people who are most vulnerable to climate change in least developed countries, in small, small island states, they're the most vulnerable people and they have contributed least to the problem through their emissions and their contributions to warming. So we looked at their historic cumulative emissions of greenhouse gases and we've also looked at their current emissions in terms of you know, how much the emissions are per capita. And, you know, it's a very clear message. The most vulnerable have contributed least. And that's where the global equity issues come in. And that's why one of the three goals of the Paris Agreement is to enhance financial flows to support countries that are in that kind of situation. So the fact that the $100 billion target or goal has yet to be met, uh, you know, is obvious, obviously going to be of some concern to people. But it's worthwhile saying that $100 billion a year is not enough. We're talking about trillions of dollars that are actually needed you know, to address the climate change, both through reducing emissions and helping countries adapt to it. And there, I think the message is we've got to be cleverer about it because public funding will not do, do all that. There's a need to leverage up private uh, uh, financing from the private sector uh, by putting in place the kind of policies that de-risk investments in climate action for people in the private sector. Hmm. The other thing I want to ask you about is um, language. So, you know, I've been at this a while now, and we used to call it climate change, and now we call it the climate crisis, and, and the language itself is, is evolving. Antonio Guterres, um, who this week, you know, is again, been very outspoken about climate change or lack thereof, or uh, climate action, I should say, or lack thereof. He said um, that, quote, humanity has opened the gates to hell. He's also used expressions like global boiling. These, he's not mincing words. I'm just wondering, Jim, what you think of that kind of language, how effective it is? 
Well, I mean, j j just to say, uh, because IPCC has to agree every word by consensus with all, all its member countries, please do not expect to see that kind of language coming out of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We are inevitably going to be much more cautious in the kind of language that we, that we choose. But just to say, I, I, I do think, uh, you know, we, we are conveying the same kind of message in, different, in a different kind of language. So I don't think there's any, any inconsistency. It's just that we in IPCC would probably be a little bit more measured given the mandate, uh, you know, that, that we have been given. Hmm. And does that sense of, well, I don't know, um, apocalyptic sort of messaging create a sense of doom and despondency? How, like, I mean, how do we find that balance when trying to communicate urgency, but also not <laughs> frighten people or to give them some hope? Yeah, well, well, I mean, it's something we've been very conscious about in actually uh, communicating the messages uh, from the reports that we produced, uh, uh, you know, in most recently, this earlier this year and, and last year, because we are aware of the fact that if you convey a message of complete doom, it can induce a sense of hopelessness uh, that can inhibit action rather than encourage the action that is actually needed. So what we have tried to emphasize as well, there is a there is clear arguments about the urgency of the situation, how difficult a situation we are actually in. But we would also want to emphasize that human beings have agency over their future as well. We have tools, we have measures that are ready to be deployed, both in terms of reducing emissions and making us more resilient to the physical effects of climate change. And that is something we've been quite careful to try to emphasize as well. Sure, there's urgency, but also we have the agency. We can do this and we, we can address climate change. As you say, um, the IPCC's reports are a product of collaboration between science, scientists and government. Every line is negotiated. You need to get consensus from all um, member governments. That's a tough job, Jim. What do you see as the value of this kind of collaboration? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, and just to say it sure is a tough job. I have experience of, you know, helping to gavel through uh, several quite, quite difficult reports. Um, but uh, just to say, I think the value of it is, you know, sure, we're not going to, to pr produce such, maybe such startling messages or have such startling language as the Secretary General can, can, uh, can use. But what it means is that once we've got that agreement between science and governments, it means there's no going back on the kind of statements that IPCC comes up with. So when governments get into the formal negotiations at the COPs, you know, part of the platform for these negotiations are the very strong messages that IPCC has come up with. And let's remember that in the last report, one of our strong messages is that human beings are unequivocally the cause of the climate change that we're seeing. That's a very, very strong, strong kind of statement. And it leads you into the, the kind of steps, the measures that may need to be taken. If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with Jim Ski, who is the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. COP28 in Dubai is um, two months away. There's been criticism over the event being hosted in the UAE, a major oil producing country and being led uh, by an oil company CEO. I know you don't speak for COP, but I'm wondering what 
message do you think that sends? Do you hear that criticism? Well, obviously, anybody who reads the newspapers or looks at social media has, uh, you know, has heard that criticism. But one point that I would make, you know, to, to move us forward with action on climate change, we really need to bring together a very diverse group of countries or groups of countries uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, come to agreement on forward action. And realistically, if anybody is not part of that effort, uh, you know, efforts, global efforts to deal with climate change are not going to succeed. And that is really the challenge. And we have it in IPCC. It's there in the convention as well, that we need to keep a broad church of people that includes people who have produced fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuels, who have fossil fuel reserves, people who are desperately vulnerable in small island states, uh, other countries that may have, uh, you, you know, who, who have actually succeeded already in trying to get their emissions down. And we need to keep that broad church together. And inevitably, you will find that COPs are held in different locations down the world. This is the, this is the turn of the UAE. And I don't think we should be surprised about it. That's the way that we need to move forward. We, of course, here in Canada are a fossil fuel producing nation as well. Um, at the climate summit, a UN official called Canada out for being one of the largest expanders of fossil fuels last year. There was also a big petroleum conference, um, the world's largest, in Calgary. What is your message to Canadian leaders about the road ahead and the future of fossil fuels? Yeah, and again, I have to approach this one delicately mm. because IPCC leaders do not comment on the you know the strategies of of in individual countries. But just to say, I mean, certainly since uh, the you know the the war in in Ukraine, we have seen a lot of countries developing uh, new fossil fuel uh, reserves. Uh, you know not just Canada, other countries as well, and quite a variety of different countries with different circumstances. And what we would do, I think, in, in uh, you know, messaging this in terms of what the scientific underpinning is, we sent a clear message in the last reports that if all the, the current oil and gas reserves were developed, we would break the uh, global bud carbon budget for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that sends a clear message that some of the reserves we have would need to stay in the ground if we were to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the development of new reserves actually, you know, makes that, that, that challenge ever more acute. And if we're going to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, some policymakers at some point in the future will need to make a decision to keep some of these reserves in the ground. And I think that's the, the scientifically based message that we would get out there. I know I have to let you go, but just before I do, the most recent IPCC report says the next decade is the decisive one for reducing global emissions. So, Jimsky, how confident are you about what our world will look like and feel like 10 years from now? Well, I mean, it, it's very clear. I mean, it's uh, uh, you, you, the last IPCC set, report said, quote unquote, it's more likely uh, than not that we will reach 1.5 degrees warming in the early 2030s even if we take ambitious action. So it's very clear in this decade, you know, we need to face up to, if we want to, the challenge of getting emissions down very, very substantially to put us on a path that would allow the, the long-term temperature goal of the Paris Agreement to be met. 
but also in terms of action, some warming is inevitable. Some of the things we saw this summer may get even worse over the next 10 years or so. So we need to build our resilience and put in adaptive measures as well. We need to follow that twin track. We need to adapt and we need to reduce our emissions. Jim, thank you for making time for us here in Canada. Appreciate you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Jim Ski is the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. If you want more news and information about climate change, please check out cbcnews.ca slash climate. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So earlier you heard some of the strong words from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres this past week during the UN General Assembly. Well, beneath the rhetoric is a deep concern. Guterres described our world as coming unhinged. And with geopolitical tensions mounting, said, quote, we seem incapable of coming together to respond. Well, one thing that might help solve the world's problems is a little more commitment to long-term thinking. That's the view of Richard Fisher. He's a BBC journalist whose latest book is called The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time. Richard Fisher, good morning. Hi, hi. It's lovely to be here. Let me put you on the spot to start things off. If you had a chance to address the gathering of world leaders at the UN General Assembly this past week, and say you only had a minute, what would your message be to them about the values of long-term thinking? Oh, gosh. Well, um, if only one minute. I probably would. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I'd just focus on the long view. Uh, take, take the long view. I mean, it's something that's so important to me. Uh, you know, I, think, I think thinking about... Uh, our relationship between generations. I mean, that, that's how this project, this book started for me, thinking about the relationship with my daughter and her life uh, extending into the, the next century, potentially. You know, she she was born in 2013. Uh, she may well live to be 86, 87. And as the fireworks go off, uh, as the next century arrives in 2100, she, she'll be an old woman, uh, hopefully with her own grandchildren. So that that's that's what I would encourage the politicians to think about. The relationship that we have with the people that came before us and the ones that come after us that we have a duty to posterity and um, you know we, we just borrow the planet for a brief period uh, before we pass it on to the next people and so we need to make sure that we don't pass on a world that was worse than the one we inherited yeah i mean first of all when i think of citizens of the 22nd century already living amongst us your daughter and mine same age um it's kind of hard to fathom that and it also reminds me that you know, as a journalist, whenever I talk to someone, and you're, I'm sure you're the same way, about what's going to happen in the future, say the 22nd century, the conversation is usually not about a good thing. In other words, we're talking about like, oh, the climate crisis is going to be so much worse in the future. Like, it's it's not really like usually a hopeful kind of conversation. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm a BBC journalist and, you know, I was reflecting on some of the headlines that uh, come across my desk. You know, it's often you know, sea levels will rise to this level by 2100. Uh, artificial intelligence will have taken all our jobs by the 22nd century. You know, so many of the stories that we encounter in our daily news diet uh, in regards to the next century are not not good. Um, but, you know, there, taking the long view shows there is a kind of like a, uh, a chance for, for hope. I mean, we, we do many things are, are getting worse, but then you take the long view, you start to see that things have got better in some respects, you know, child poverty statistics around the world are certainly better, you know, the, the scientific uh, discoveries have, have kind of made 
advances in medicine. So, you know, the long view gives you the perspective to both see the, the kind of the dangers coming down the track, but also kind of how we could change them for the better too. And in contrast to that, and I guess is somewhat anecdotally, but like how widespread do you think short-term thinking in our world is nowadays? Well, it's, it's hard to define it scientifically to say, that, you know, it's, it's here. I mean, I, I don't think it's something that's people would disagree with, you know, that they said most people in most professions that I talk to, no, no matter whether it's medicine or law or, or business, to see the effects of short-term thinking on their own industry. Um, I, I think if it was a simple thing to define, it would also be a simple thing to solve, but there's no silver bullet for it. You know, it, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why a short-term view takes hold within uh, a, a kind of society, a business, and, and from your individual point of view. You know, there are many incentives that didn't exist for our ancestors, you know, quarterly reporting, uh, the, the, the political term of, of two or four years, you know, the, the kind of the the consumer kind of appetite is, is very short-termist as well. I, I work in the media, you know, we, we cover the last 24 hours or even the last hour, hmm. you know, the, it's very much of like what's happening now. So all, all these forces exist and they're not easy to solve, uh, but they're, they're there. Um, I think if we're going to solve the problem of short-term thinking, we need to identify, first of all, what the cause is. As I sort of think of this on the individual level, the short-term thinking in my mind is um, really effective and satisfying in that it seems like I'm not you know, biting off more than I can chew. In other words, I can accomplish the task at hand or solve the problem at hand, and I feel good about that individually, but also about good about the place in my world. And on the more macro level, you know, when I think of, uh, okay, what are the acute crisis the world are f uh, facing right now, whether that's a geopolitical, a, a war in Europe, things like that, I think, well, sort of my instinct is like, well, let's just fix that now. Let's just, let's just do it now. And so I don't have the long view. And I, I'm wondering what you sort of, my example, again, is just anecdotal on me, but what you sort of hear and see and have found out through your research about that sort of approach that we humans have. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are deep-rooted reasons why we seek instant gratification, uh, you know, we why we don't necessarily plan for the future. It, you know, we, we still have somewhat prehistoric brains. Uh, we, we haven't kind of, the, our, our kind of mental architecture is not radically different from people who lived thousands of years ago. And so we, we haven't quite adapted to the pressures of the, the modern world yet. Um, but, you know, we, we've invented behaviours, institutions, ways of adapting to it, uh, to the kind of things that we surround us now, the pressures that we're under in. Uh, in. So I don't think it's impossible, but yeah, the, the, the certain, certainly the, in the kind of consumerist society that we live in, where, you know, it, it, there are simple sugars that you can kind of just consume and, 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 and everything feels good. And, and it's about just pursuing that. That's, that's harder to do than, uh, you know, do something that, for example, benefits the next generation. I mean, I mean this, this is kind of on my mind at the moment. I, I was in um, Germany uh, last week reporting a story for the New York Times about this artwork uh, in a little town called Vending where the people are building this this pyramid one block at a time every 10 years um and they that it will take 1200 years to finish i mean it's a it's a massive endeavor you know, like it takes it's hard to put your head on get your head around like how long it's going it's going to take and, but but i think it's the opposite of instant gratification you know it's it's 
a, a town, a community, a generation even deciding that they're going to start something, but they're not going to finish it within their lifetime. But they're okay with that, that, that you know, that some things are, are about generational baton passing, you know, just trusting the next generation to take on a long-term problem, a, a challenge. Um, and, you know, this, this is a symbolic project, but I, I think we can, you know, there are, there are challenges that we face as a society, grand challenges of, of the century that are not easy to solve. Okay, so let us focus on a few of the areas where the short-term thinking is a major issue. I think the obvious one that jumps into everyone's head is, is probably politics. And again, there are acute problems that politicians have to deal with, but how does that short-term thinking affect what political leaders can do, what they can accomplish? Well, I, th- I think uh, if we're thinking about incentives and deterrence, there are clear reasons why politicians don't sometimes take the long view. You know, if if you have a, a term limit, a, not a term limit, sorry, a term length of uh, two years or four years, you're going to think about the next election and, and how to get re-elected. I, I, I think that's just a natural human response to the career of a politician. So, I, I you know, I do understand from the point of view of the politician, the challenge of doing something that you know will be unpopular. You know, there's a famous quote by the former president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker. He, you know, he said after the financial crisis of 2006-2007, we all know what we need to do, but we don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it. <laughs> and this this quote became kind of kind of notorious, but it's, it kind of represents the dilemma for the politician. Well, what, how do you do what you know to be right? but knowing that it won't be popular in the short term. And that underpins many of the kind of environmental policies that are discussed in response to things like, uh, you know, IPCC reports. I mean, this, this is something that politicians don't disagree with. I mean, they, they, they kind of, they see what the world that they might leave for their children, but they also have the pressures of being a career politician, getting reelected, doing, and doing, being, being democratic, you know, some, so to an extent, sometimes like the, the, the people that are rep- need to be represented don't exist yet or their children you know they they can't vote yet so future generations don't have any kind of voting rights and that's a challenge if you're a politician you believe in kind of democracy you know you should do what the voters say that we should do you know but but you know those people aren't here yet and so Mm. there are many dilemmas within politics that uh and you know are deep-rooted not impossible to solve and just sticking with the politics at davos at the world economic forum um this year, apparently the buzzword was polycrisis, as in the world is facing myriad problems at the same time, climate crisis to AI, to the pandemic, to inequality. How does that make long term thinking even more important for our political leaders? Like, I, I, I hear you. And when you say, look, the political expediency makes people focus on the short term. A lot of people go into politics for, quote unquote, the right reasons. They want to make the world a better place. So how do you sort of square those things? I think about this on a, on a personal level, because as I was writing this book, my sense of time expanded and shrunk. Uh, you know, I, I experienced some crises along the way, you know, the, the kind of the very stressful birth of my daughter, the death of my father. You know, the, these are things that uh, plunges into crisis. And one thing that you know, I observed about myself during those periods was that my sense of the long view just disappeared. You know, when, when you're kind of in crisis, that you're only thinking about the present because you have to to you know focus on the people you love and, and what matters. Um, if you expand that out to kind of a society, you know, how, how we're living in crisis after crisis, you know, you read the news every day and there's there's something going on. Like that is a pressure which is making it harder to take a long-term perspective. So I think we're in a double kind of 
you know a, a loop of a trap that with with the the poly crisis and the idea that that it's crisis after crisis the, 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 not only do we need to solve some of these crises because they're they're big and they're, they're long term but we also kind of have to face up to the fact that they are causing us to be a bit more short-termist so i i guess i don't have silver bullets or solutions for that but i i do try and on a personal level think about the kind of the media i consume um it, I, i'm aware if i spend too much time in the news media how it can shape my view of the world you know if you if you only read what happened in the past 24 hours it certainly can feel like we are plunged into crisis but it's not always the case you know so, some things are getting worse some things are staying the same some things are getting better and so if you if you can kind of like think about the media diet that you have and try try and take a long term view of that then that can at least at least like allow you to stand back from the, the feeling that the the world is falling apart so we both work in the news media i think what i'm hearing from you uh is look we're p- part of the problem in quotes maybe i put problem in quotes are we yeah oh well, i think i think we're all on this planet together right so we're we all we're all sharing it so i i guess there are many journalists who are who are kind of thoughtful uh you know, producers of news, there are others that are less so. And I think there is a, a certain short-termist tendency within news to just focus on like what sells or, or what's going to kind of get the clicks and the eyeballs uh, from social media. I mean, you know, writing for social media is the ultimate kind of like short-termist force. You know, it, it only matters what's happening right now. Um, but I guess I, I make a distinction between news and journalism. News is a subset of journalism. And, there's, there's, you know, I, I try and use the term long journalism in my own work to think about ways in which I can kind of integrate the long view into what I write and produce. Um, but yeah, it is certainly the case that a journalist's job sometimes is to focus on the present because that's the you know that's mm. that's the job you know you, you're reporting the news. But um, I, I think uh, there there are ways to kind of get around that. You know, fascinating in your book, your insight that people haven't always thought the way we think about time. And I don't know, like it, it's. If I think about it, it seems like, oh, obviously not. But I also felt like it was like a shocking discovery to me. Like, wait a minute, we haven't always worked this way. There are other ways to think about it. And you explain like how we sort of got here within our consumer culture and instant gratification and the sugar and the dopamine and all those kinds of things that we are so tied to nowadays. But I'm wondering, Richard, is short term thinking just part of the way we humans are wired? I, I, you know, I think... uh... We're a product of our environment and our social interactions. So I think a lot about um, how my own sense of time developed, you know, because I'm I'm a, a British person, you probably get off my accent. You know, I have a certain view of time that, that was based on my education and background. And, uh, you know, I, I think, for example, I, I, I think of time generally as, ru- as running from left to right, like an x-axis on a graph, you know, or, or I think of the, the future being in front of me, and the past behind, you know, I'm navigating a landscape. But it, you look at different uh, cultures around the world and different languages, and often those orientations are different. You know, there there are there are cultures where the the the, the past is in front. You can see it because obviously we can, we can see history. But the future is behind because we don't know what it is. So you're walking backwards into the future. You know, it's like other cultures, when you ask them about next month, they they don't think left and right. They they talk about up and down. You know, there, there even like there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea where uh, researchers went and interviewed the the members of the of this tribe and, and said like 
you know, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's what's happening yesterday. And they live on this very steep slope on the side of a valley. And tomorrow was uphill and and yesterday was downslope. You know, so uh, that, that sense of like the way time manifests in the brain is is a is not just a product of you know our, 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 the clock and, and it, it's, it's shaped by culture and language and all these other things and so that makes me think that if that's the case then our sense of time can change i guess the question is how do we, how do we do that right a tribe in papua new guinea is not the lives you or i live in our modern western democracies um and as you say, for for example, our political systems don't really give room, or um, you know, you don't get reelected if you if you say I'm going to take the long view and do the right thing. So, so what needs to change in our societies? Well, I think I think one thing that um, I found during researching the book is that there are many different groups, organizations, movements, even people around the world that are kind of converging on the idea that the, the long view matters and that we need to kind of think longer term, but, you know, that they're kind of disconnected and disparate. You know, there's, there's people that are taking a philosophical mathematical point of view, uh, which is known as long-termism, which is quite a, quite an academic way of thinking about it. You know, it's about adding up the number of people in the future and then comparing them with, with the, the amount of people today and then weighing up their needs. There's political movements, you know, that there's, close to home where I am in, in Wales, there's a future generations commissioner who encourages politicians to integrate the rights of future generations into their policies. You know, then then there are kind of like artistic projects, like the project I was in visiting Germany last week, you know, which is a multi-generational effort to build a giant pyramid over the next 1200 years. You know, that's an artistic point of view. So uh, there are many different ways of approaching the long view. I, I'm, I, but I'm reassured that in all these different communities and movements and organizations, people are realizing that this is something that they can do. Um, so there's no one way to, to take the long view. I don't think there's an easy way to solve short-termism either. But uh, I think things are gradually starting to change as people see this as an important issue. So to the naysayer, uh, Richard, who says to you, what is the point of this this long view, this, this long-term thinking? The world's going to end anyway soon, you know? What do you say to that attitude? Well, I, think, I think about one of the things I concluded after, you know, spending a few years immersed in this topic is that there are many benefits in taking the long view for society, uh, for future generations, but there are also personal benefits too. You know, that there are upsides that you can discover by taking the long view, finding the everyday deep time uh, artifacts that are in your life, it, you know, stepping beyond the, the now, all, all these things can help you to have a great sense of hope, to see how the world actually works, to see the trends that are actually shaping the century that, that we live in. You know, I, I think the it's often seen and framed as a form of sacrifice, you know, that we should do the right thing by future people. But I don't think it necessarily needs to be that, that way. There are, There's many ways that you can take the long view that benefit you in the present too you know we were talking about the poly crisis earlier on i i i find when i'm navigating kind of the the news media the challenges that i see in politics and in culture you know the, the long view gives me perspective it gives me a sense that things are bad now but they can change you know and they have changed in the past and they will change in the future and i guess it's also a motivator that we can make a difference. Like if we all sit here and say, oh, the world's really screwed and there's nothing I can do and sort of throw our hands up, it's quite different than looking at things more long-term and, and long-view and saying like, 
maybe I can make a difference. Maybe if I do something, I can change the world in big and small ways. When you start to see things multi-generationally, you, and, you know, I, to go back to my daughter, I think she's a, a great source of hope for me. You know, I, I think it's not just about what you personally can do. That's, you know, it, it's, it doesn't need to be individualistic. If we take the view that, you know, our, our predecessors on this planet, you know, move the dial a bit, we, we're going to move it a bit more, but we're going to pass it to the next generation to take that on. I, I think the the greatest legacy, the greatest heirloom that we can give to the next generation is the choice to be able to act in the way that they want, you know, to, to increase choice. I think that, that's we don't have to kind of impart our will on the future and shape the next million years. We just have to just give the next generation a choice. Richard, it's been good to talk to you and give us lots to think about um, just to, to take that long view and to at least meditate on that and hopefully change some of our ways. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Richard Fisher is a BBC journalist. His new book is called The Long View. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Now, before we close up shop today here on the Sunday Magazine, I want to remind you that a new season is upon us. Yesterday was the first official day of fall, or if you prefer, autumn. And as the heat of summer gives way to chillier weather, you may find yourself heading to the closet for some relief, perhaps in the form of a cardigan, you know, sweater that buttons up. Now, you may see this as simply an extra cozy layer to keep you warm. But Alexandra Palmer sees something far more layered. Alexandra's a senior curator of global fashions and textiles at Toronto's Royal Ontario Museum. And as you're about to hear from her, that cardigan of yours comes along with a radical past. The name The Cardigan, or A Cardigan with a capital C, comes from the Earl of Cardigan, who is a British major general who is famous and actually quite infamous at the Charge of the Light Brigade in the Battle of Balaclava. Lord Cardigan was actually very controversial at the time because he was not considered a, a good commander. He was more interested in the way he looked and his horses. The cardigan then comes is named after him and supposedly a um, woolly kind of waistcoat or what we call a vest um, that he wore under his uniform, which he would have bought and which was very expensive. And in the 20th century, really, it's uh, associated with Gabrielle Chanel. Now, Chanel, in the early days in World War One and around that moment, turned to menswear, which she liked very much because she thought it was comfier. Um, she used knitted um, material that was used in France for men's underclothing and adopted it for women's clothing, a, a fitted um, knitted thing that you could put on over your head. A pullover um, was something that supposedly she took from one of her boyfriends. But also she opened it up and, and made it so that you didn't have to mess up your hair. The association of these knitted kind of clothes with sports, whether it's Lord Cardigan riding astride or the polo outfit, um, men playing polo in the early part of the century was, of course, a very fashionable elite sport as it is to this day. One of the polo players replaced in 1913 his coat with a cardigan, a knitted coat, um, that was seen as quite controversial, but it was recognised that this gave him more freedom of movement. So this kind of fine line between having correct dress and looking smart 
and knitted clothes would go into sports. So it was used in, in golfing in the 1920s. It was an American, of course, very renegade, um, golfing in Scotland, Harry Varden, who exchanged his proper golfing jacket for a cardigan sweater. And um, this was considered very outrageous. And there was, in fact, a um, an anti-coat brigade um, that started and, and lots of controversy over this because it was seen as kind of a bit déclassé and um, pulling down the tone of the sport. The problem, in fact, with the cardigan and um, with both men and women adopting it is that it's seen as casual and that informality is often associated with class and with money. If you are young girls who are accepted to uh, universities and are getting an education in the early 20th century, then you're absolutely part of an elite. Um, and so to wear something that doesn't necessarily celebrate your eliteness in that way, and they're doing they're being what you know we call now perfect kind of teenagers or um, youth rebellion um, by adopting something that's seen also as male and taking on uh, this kind of more male role and not wearing appropriately feminine attire. So this is when fashion, I think, is really interesting. Is when it does get appropriated and people get so upset. What are those triggers? It's not the cardigan. It's the association of it and what he's getting. Invariably, um, people who aren't wearing it, often men trying to put women in their place, or even even other women, uh, mothers and people who are concerned about appearances, when in fact what these women were doing was trying to change the appearance that um, you didn't necessarily need to wear a suit to be educated or have a look and that you could be young and you could be free. So this idea of kind of freeing the mind and freeing the body is is a bit tenuous when it comes to the history of women's wear. The cardigan's anti-elite aesthetic, well, it became something of a uniform in the 1990s among certain musical subcultures. Artists and fans in the feminist punk genre known as Riot Girl began donning it. And so, too, did Kurt Cobain of the band Nirvana, who was the poster boy for grunge music. In fact, his now famously ratty cardigan, replete with stains and cigarette burns, sold for more than $300,000 U.S. at auction. Well, I think that's part of the whole re-adoption of the cardigan or the ratty cardigan in the 90s. It was part of that kind of grunge fashion thing and kind of stemming from punk too, of things that were déclassé and not very nice, being worn kind of in your face and like, deal with it or leave me alone. And of course, very sort of rock and roll attitude. You know, these are deliberate decisions and, and they appeal to certain kind of people, you know, a subculture or a group of fans who who think that that's really cool. But definitely um, irritating a, a whole bunch of other people is, is a lot of the success of the, of the operation and the adop adoption of these garments. So, um, uh, I mean, Kurt Cobain was, was really good at doing this and uh, uh, provoking people and obviously getting a great deal of delight out of it. In 2007, there was a dispute in England. Nurses started wearing cardigans over their uniforms or their scrubs or whatever, and um, people were getting uh, upset about it. One man considered it very scruffy and inappropriate. Of course, he wasn't a nurse. 
But the concern is that they could carry disease and they were not actually healthy because they were made of wool and they couldn't be properly cleaned and, and kind of scrubbed and boiled out all the diseases. And this is one of the, the problems with clothing is that it's so loaded and used by different people for different political purposes that has nothing to do, in fact, with um, comfort or the person perhaps who's wearing it. And of course, nowadays, cardigans are ubiquitous for men, women, children, anyone really, even probably your dog or your cat. What might be revolutionary about it today is perhaps the colour, possibly the textile, if it's some new technology, or certainly if it's used for a kind of graphic purpose so that you can um, emblazon something on the back of it. So there's still lots of possibilities left for the cardigan. Alexandra Palmer is a senior curator of global fashions and textiles at Toronto's Royal Ontario Museum. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Ronde Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technicians Emily Chiarvasio and Will Yar. Our senior producer is Allison Maisman. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.